Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 132 of the podcast, An Ode to the Sugar Bush. This episode is all about maples, all about maple syrup, all about maple sugar, all that kind of beautiful stuff. First with our segment of the Know Your Tree segment, all about the sugar maple, and then diving deep into the last four years of sugar bushing with Ride the Adventure Guy and his dear co-host, yours truly, Caleb Musgrave. So stay tuned. into the conversation between myself and Rye, let's get into the Know Your Trees segment for this episode. This episode's tree segment, Know Your Tree segment, is all about the sugar maple, Acer saccharum. Not to be confused with Acer saccharinum, which is the silver maple, which gets things confusing, and then you have a bunch of other confusions because there's so many maples that look alike. So we're going to focus on the sugar maple in this episode. we got episodes for the red maple, we've got episodes for silver maple, we've got episodes for the Manitoba maple, and many others of the eastern maples. But in this episode, we're going to focus on, or in this segment, we're going to be focusing on the sugar maple. So first, we're going to dive into kind of its natural history, its regional areas, all that kind of stuff. And then we're going to get into kind of helping you identify a sugar maple. Because there's, again, a lot of maples that can look like them. The main one, the main culprit, we'll be touching on a lot in this episode, being the red maple. So first and foremost, let's talk about the ecosystem that it really likes. The sugar maple is a very mm, shade-tolerant to shade-loving tree. It can grow very well under the shade and under the canopy of more mature maples, hemlocks, ash trees, and all those other Carolinian kind of mixed hardwood plains trees, which makes it ideal for planting in mixed hardwood. So if you're looking for a place to find them, look for those mixed hardwood forests. They like to grow and they can even grow to the point that they are actually established as the next generation of growth and almost become a monoculture. But they have very particular needs. At the same time, they can be very interesting generalists. So first and foremost, the where they thrive the most is between uh, hardiness zones from the USDA, hard, uh, USDA hardiness zone chart of zones three to five, though they do grow down in zone six and even warmer climates, but they don't thrive there. They don't do very well in very warm climates. They do best in fairly cold climates, such as Ontario, Quebec, and the American Northeast. They are about 200, to, they can get to about 200 to 300 years old on an average, with some unique ones getting as, uh, as old as 500 years or half a millennia. Now, what gets interesting with these trees is how they can actually require that deep cold. They, the, the sugar maple has evolved to thrive in cold climates. Certain maples, like big leaf maple on the West Coast, have, in, have evolved to grow in fairly temperate, warm climates. 
Uh, the red maple is a generalist across the board. They can grow as far south as, as Florida and as far north as central Ontario and even a little further north. Uh, but the sugar maple has really evolved to live where there's going to be deep freeze. They, they really actually thrive best at deep freeze, so much so that they're one of the few trees in the whole world where their seeds germinate just above freezing temperature, about three to five degrees Celsius, sometimes upwards of seven degrees Celsius is where you actually find those seeds germinating. Most trees, they do need cold stratification like red oak, uh, or they need warm stratification like blueberries is a good example, or Saskatoons or service berries. That makes sense, but their seeds germinate when the ground is really warm. That's when the seeds actually germinate. They, they overwinter or they oversummer, and then they pop out at the right time of year when it's warm, ideal growing conditions. The sugar maple has evolved to beat its competition by coming out just after the thaw really starts to kick in, when the soil is around three to five degrees, sometimes upwards again to around seven degrees Celsius. It's an extremely shade tolerant tree again, as I said earlier, but one thing it cannot handle is moist soil. It doesn't like swamp. It doesn't like pure sand either. Those are like the two conditions it won't thrive in at all. It'll die in. And so that helps us identify it from other maples because many of those maples can survive in really wet conditions. Silver maples like to grow on the shores of lakes as well as red maple, often being nicknamed swamp maple, can grow in very, very deep water, for uh, reasonably deep water for hardwood trees for quite a long time in flooding, up to 60 days without any damage to their foliage. And so the sugar maple is different than them in that way. And one of the reasons it is different is because it's used to growing on these drumlin ecosystems, these glacial till ecosystems that evolved, that it evolved on top of here in Eastern Canada and the American Northeast. You've get the, got the drumlins, you've got the mountain ranges. That's where you're going to find sugar maples up off the ground a little, or up off the, the bottom of the forest a little bit. They're going to be up on hilltops. So that helps us again, identify where we're going to find this tree. They're going to be growing up. They're going to be up on the hill, up on the ridge. If they are down near the, uh, down near a swamp or down near a lake shore, it's usually up on the shore where there's some decent drainage. And one of the reasons for this is its evolution of hydraulic lift. So let's talk about hydraulic lift real quickly. Mm. Hydraulic lift is the fact that the sugar maple puts out a very deep taproot and very broad uh, lateral roots or horizontal roots. The taproot is where the hydraulic lift actually works. And this is kind of what's really fascinating about the sugar maple and its ecology. That deep taproot causes hydraulic lift. It draws up and sucks up a lot of water through all of that uh, cellulose and all that amazing cell structure of the tree's root system draws that wetter soil, uh, the wetter water from, uh, sorry, the wetter water. Oh my gosh. So what happens when I start recording without coffee. It draws up water from wet soil deeper down in the ground up to the dry soil near its lateral roots. And this helps the tree, but it also helps its neighbors. So this tree is actually helping hydrate the soil around it. So that's why you have a lot of vernal plants surviving and thriving around. Things like mayapple, things like uh, wild leek or ramp, uh, things like the bloodroot and a lot of different viola or violets, 
will grow, especially in the early spring into mid-spring, because they're trying. That's when those plants really need to put out a lot of leaves, photosynthesize as much as they can, so they can produce their flowers just before the leaf uh, structure of the bigger trees around them overshade them, and they won't be able to photosynthesize and create more energy. And so a nice damp soil helps them. And so they grow around these sugar maples that aren't going to really fully leaf out until mm, May. And that gives them a good, you know, up to two months, depending on the season, uh, depending on the year, of photosynthesizing while getting hydrated by that maple drawing water up to the surface. So when we get back to our food forest conversations, this is a great reason to plant sugar maple on your property. It's going to help draw water up and make plants around them more drought tolerant because they're going to be damper under the soil. So that's an amazing aspect of the sugar maple, in my opinion, is that ability to cause hydraulic lift and bring water up closer to the surface for other plants and themselves. And this is actually their relationship with mycelium for the mushrooms that grow around them, all that kind of stuff. It is the hydraulic lift. That's why you seem to see a lot of life in a sugar bush when you may not see it in a forest that doesn't have sugar maple, though some other trees do this as well. Uh, it's not just the sugar maple that has hydraulic lift, but it's a very well-documented tree regarding hydraulic lift. So again, they don't like pure sand mainly because of the drainage issue and also because their roots need a little bit more uh, nutrients. They like a good amount of humus in the soil. Um, they like being in an established forest. In fact, they are a tree that grows well in the old growth forests, unlike red maple. Red maple don't do well in old growth forests. They do best in transitional forest and wood, uh, sorry, wood edge habitat. Whereas the sugar maple can grow deep in the woods. So those are some really cool aspects in regards to its uh, requirements. So zones three to five, it needs a deep cold. Like it actually does need deep cold to thrive. The, the southern trees, A, do not produce the same kind of sap production for sugaring as the northern sugar maples do that are up in zones three to five. So zone six and such, they're, they're just not going to do well. But when you get up here, the, the other part to that is also they don't thrive very well because they're not getting that sap production. They're not getting that cold, that deep cold and then warm summers which is what they find in the American Northeast and Ontario and Quebec. They also grow in Manitoba. Sorry, I got to chug some water there. I was getting a very dry mouth. So all that out of the way, let's talk about what their use is to the ecology beyond their hydraulic lift and the homing and housing of other smaller plants. The main thing is they're, they're a food source to many animals. First and foremost, the rosy maple moth is a very predominant parasitic life form on this tree. Uh, they can they can really put it, some damage on the sugar maple, but they're a native maple moth. They're a native moth that actually has a relationship with the sugar maple, and so it kind of keeps them in check in a certain way. There's some certain checks and balances in the relationship, uh, but they're a predominant food source for the rosy maple moth. Porcupine, beaver, white-tailed deer, and squirrels are some of the many mammals that rely on sugar maple as a food source. For porcupine and beaver, it's the bark as well as squirrel. Squirrel will go after the bark and the sap as well. White-tailed deer go after the browse. They go after the foliage of younger sugar maples, and they can actually become a problem and even a nuisance in a sugar in a sugar bush because as you start trying to grow the future generation of sugar maples, they come along and chow down on them. 
They also have a very interesting relationship in the sugar bush. White-tailed deer does really like those maples that get knocked over but remain alive. So if you're trying to build up a deer property, a deer hunting property, and you find a decent-sized sugar bush on the property, hinge cutting some of those maples so that they do fall over but still produce foliage and live and thrive for a few more years, you're actually building good doe habitat where they feel safe to give birth to their fawn. So there's a lot of interesting interrelationships in their ecology, which is what ecology is, the study of these relationships in the ecosystem. So I find it really, really fascinating. Now, in the in regards to our use as humans with the sugar maple, the first obvious one is the sugar. And that's why we're talking about this episode, this segment in this episode in particular. They love, uh, they, they, they love, we love the sugar maple because it produces us sugar. The sugar maple has one of the largest amounts of sugar in its sap of any tree period it beats all other maples it beats almost all other if not absolutely all hardwoods there are many hardwoods you can tap birch butternut walnut hickory pecan but the sugar maple beats everything hands down in in sugar ratio uh sometimes as low as 20 to 1 depending on the season most of the time, though, it averages closer to 40 to 1 ratio. So if you get 40 gallons of sap, you will produce one gallon of syrup. Whereas their closest rel- uh, the <clears throat> their closest competition being the red maple and the, uh, sorry, the red maple and the box elders here in, uh, in eastern Canada, at least, um, they produce closer to 60 to 1. And with the box elder, I believe it's closer to 65 or 70 to 1 to get that same amount of syrup. So the sugar maple beats everybody hands down. So that's the most well-documented use across its range of humans and its interrelationship with us. Beyond that, it is known as the hard maple in the lumber industry. That's because red maple, silver maple, and many other the other maples are soft maple. It is denser than them. And that's saying a lot because maple in general is a hard wood. It's a fairly dense wood. Both Hard maple and all soft maples are fairly easy to work by hand and with power tools. Maple, uh, the hard maple or sugar maple is prone to burning on power tools. So even though it is a lot easier to shape it with power tools, it's more likely to give you a kind of mean looking finish when you're done. It's going to be kind of burnt and charred from abrasion as well as if you have very dull uh, cutting tools on your on your power tools. So if you're looking at uh, a router, make sure that the router blades are as sharp as you can get them before you start routing out anything in sugar maple because it will burn. It will burn. Beyond that, it is a very wear-resistant wood, though it is not the most tensile strong wood. So it's not what I would recommend for making bows. If you're trying to make a hunting bow, you may want to look at something like hickory, locust, or ash and try to avoid the maples in general. But it is a very wear-resistant wood, making it very popular for knife handles as well as in the larger lumber industry, bowling lanes yeah and hardwood floors in fact the uh, the nba i believe exclusively uses sugar maple or hard maple for its floorboards uh it's very wear uh, long wearing wood uh, floor wood for that and it's also just a very durable wood when it comes down to a, that kind of abrasive nature so it's very high wear resistance it can take the kind of shock and impact of heavy objects hitting it and stuff it's not going to dent easily it's not going to ripple easily 
where uh, and it's not going to warp either. It's it's going to be very durable that way. You just don't want to try and bend it. You don't want to use it for structural kind of stuff where you're building like beams and stuff. I wouldn't recommend it, uh, especially for heavy loads. <clears throat> the other use of of sugar maple in the broader world outside of bushcraft is baseball bats. It is very popular for baseball bats. And since the introduction of the invasive emerald ash borer, devastating white and black ash populations across the American, the North American continent, it's kind of becoming the only option for baseball bats for the major league, uh, for the, for the, uh, for the major leagues and for the minor leagues and everybody else is playing baseball. Um, a lot of people think it's hickory that's the most popular. It's actually maple, uh, specifically sugar maple and white ash for baseball bats. Um, and sadly, we're going to be seeing more sugar maple wood being used for baseball bats than ash in the near future, at least if not the entirety of our future. Take care of your ecosystems and don't move firewood, please, people. In the bushcraft world, of course, we go back to sugar maple being an amazing producer of sap that is very sweet. We'll be talking about a lot of that today in this episode, but it is also very popular for knife handles, specifically because of its natural affinity to chatoyancy. Chatoyancy is a, a very peculiar ripple effect in the grain of the wood that is not impacting the grain's integrity. So when you see certain figure grain, the wood is actually being warped in one form or another, whether that's a burl or crotch wood or what have you. Chatoyancy is different. It's almost this holographic effect on the wood where you get these bands of a different color, or different shade of wood or different hardness of wood throughout that sugar maple's wood. Most maples can produce these kinds of grains. The, the curly or tiger stripe or flame stripe maples uh, are found in things like box elder, soft maples such as silver maple and red maple but it is almost always found in sugar maple. You can find it in the other species, but it is almost exclusively found in sugar maple, or at least the most common tree you find it in is in sugar maple. With that being said, that gives us a lot of options on attractive wood for different projects. Whether it's a canoe paddle, a knife handle, a cup or spoon, Things like tiger stripe maple, bird's eye maple, uh, quilted maple, flame maple, all these kinds of wood structures of maple are almost exclusively found in the sugar maple. And so that's a really fascinating aspect of value in the wood. So if you're looking for something to make a really, really pretty project from a local native hardwood, sugar maple is a good place to look. And looking for those trees that kind of look like they've got some really you know, craggy bark and messed up grain. It looks like they're kind of beat up. Those are usually the trees that are going to have that uh, figure inside of it, whether it's chatoyancy or actual figure grain like bird's eye maple. Now, there are several lookalikes or at least trees that you can confuse for a sugar maple, one of them being the black maple. Now, the black maple, it's still up for debate whether it's actually a separate species or a subspecies of sugar maple. So I myself lump it in the same category as sugar maple, and I don't try to argue people over whether it's a sugar maple or not, because I'm not an expert. I'm not a dendrologist. I'm not a, you know, a maple specific scientist of any kind. So I don't have all the evidence to back up my, my argument. But at the end of the day, a black maple is a sugar maple to me. 
and there's enough, um, what are they called, uh, taxonomists out there that are arguing that exact argument. So I will just accept if you think black maple is a separate species, cool. I'll support you on that. I'll, I'll, I'll accept your opinion and respect your opinion. And if you think a black maple is just a subspecies of sugar maple, I will also accept your opinion. At the end of the day, they produce almost the exact same, if not the exact same amount of maple syrup per liter. Their ratios are almost identical, if not absolutely identical. Their leaves are nearly identical. Their bark is nearly identical. And therefore, it's good enough <laughs> to just say it's a sugar maple too. It's okay. That leaves us with one tree species that a lot of people get confused for sugar maple, including dendrologists and other people that study trees. Masters in their craft can get confused between the red maple and the sugar maple in certain situations. So I'm going to try and keep this as generally simple as possible to help you when you're trying to identify these maples. And this is a time of year where it's the hardest because they, there's no leaves on them yet. So you got to look at things like the buds and the bark. There's other ways to identify them. We'll go through that as well, but we're going to start with buds and bark and then work into leaves and seeds and flowers and such. So let me pull my notes up here, make sure I've got them. I always go, you know, buds and bark are the easiest way to tell this time of year. Now, if you're trying to just identify a maple in general, they have opposite branches. Their branches don't alternate up the stalk. They don't, uh, the smaller branches don't, uh, and twigs don't go alternating up the branch and the branches don't go alternating up the trunk. They're going to be opposite to each other unless something is chopped off or removed one of those branches or twigs. So if you look at the entirety of the tree and the majority of the branches and twigs are opposing each other, there's pretty much two groups of trees that can do that in the Northeast, and that is maple and ash. You also have dogwoods and horse chestnuts, but you're not going to find those anywhere close to the size of a maple or an ash. So if the branches look big and bulky and thick and the buds look massive, chances are that's an ash. If the branches look very dainty and thin and taper to a very fine point, chances are that's a maple. And that's the easiest way to break that down. Now that we got that out of the way, let's try to figure out whether it's a red maple or a sugar maple. Okay. On the, on the grand scheme of things, I'm looking at the buds and I'm looking at the bark this time of year. It can get kind of finicky with the bark. The bark of a red maple is usually smoother than that of a sugar maple. That's the first thing. If you see really smooth maple bark, chances are, and it's on a good sized tree and you know it's not a silver maple, you know it's not a box elder, chances are it's a red maple. If the bark is really shaggy looking, but it's really hard and tough at the same time, chances are that's a sugar maple. Now, there's a few other aspects of the bark. Now, we're going to focus on bark mostly first because... The buds are the biggest giveaway, but they're way up at the top of the tree. And if you forgot your binoculars, it's kind of hard to identify by the buds. Now, if you look at the local trees below the sugar maple, again, because they're more shade tolerant than the red maples are, chances are those will be uh, sugar maple seedlings or saplings around you and identify the buds from there and yada, yada, yada. But let's focus on the bark first because it's the easiest way, even though it can be a big, big gradient of accuracy. So on red maple, the bark is a lot easier to peel off. If you grab a piece, if it is flaking, you can take it off the tree very easily. Whereas on sugar maple, when you grab one of those flakes, it really doesn't want to let go of the trunk. The, the outer bark is a lot more well held on to the tree. Even if it has big, long flakes, they just don't seem to want to rip off easily. Now, 
on red maple, if the bark is peeling or flaking, it usually, and I want to make that very clear, usually peels from tip to bottom. So in other words, it's going to be peeling vertically. So the bottom part of the flake and the top part of the flake are going to be lifted up like the bow and stern of a canoe. Whereas on a sugar maple, if it is peeling, and they often are, it's the left and right sides of the flake that seem to be lifting up and curving, like the gunnels of a canoe. So that's the easiest way for me to tell when I'm looking at them, is you're looking for that vertical or horizontal peel. If it's a horizontal peel, it's a sugar maple. If it's a vertical peel on the flake, it's a red maple. Usually, there are always going to be some variances. Red maples often get also these bullseye patterns on their bark, where sugar maple don't. Red maple gets that sugar, uh, that bullseye pattern from a fungal attack, and that pattern stays on the bark for the rest of that tree's growing life. Sugar maple does not get the same fungal attack, therefore it does not get the bullseye pattern. The other way to identify them in the wintertime and early, early spring, late winter especially, is by their buds. The tips of a red maple are going to be bright red to dark red. Sugar maple, they're usually brown. Their buds on a red maple are big and round. They're, they almost look like a red ash bud or branch on the tip. They're big, they're round, they're large and charge, and they're red. They're very, very red. Whereas the buds on a sugar maple, they're small, almost dainty. Uh, they're pointed instead of rounded, and they're brown. They're not going to have that same redness, okay? So when you're looking at that tree's branches, if you do bring your binoculars and you've identified that it's definitely a maple because it's got opposite branches, and you've identified it's definitely not an ash because it's got dainty little branches that taper instead of being big, thick, chunky branches, you've identified and confirmed it's a maple. If the branches' buds are red, it's not a sugar maple. It's a red maple. If the branches' buds are pointed and brown, and they're kind of small and dainty, that's a sugar maple. So, boom. If you check the bark and it's peeling from left to right and it's very dense, solid bark and it doesn't want to come off the trunk at all, and you look up at the buds and the buds are pointed and brown and little, you're looking at a sugar maple. Congratulations. You've got two identifiers that have been confirmed, the bark and the buds. Perfect. Now, we, if uh, we look later in the season, we're going to see some other things. Their leaves, maybe their flowers, Maybe they're seeds or uh, what's called a samara. Uh, we're going to start with the leaves. The leaves on a sugar maple, uh, oh, sorry, on a red maple are, you know, heavily and irregularly serrated. So they, they have these little sawtooth edges to them all over, down into the um, valleys in between the points of the maple leaf. They're going to be serrated. Whereas on a sugar maple, the, they're pointed, but they're very smooth and deep margins. So those margins that are the valleys between each point, there's not going to be serrations on those margins on a sugar maple, but they will be there on a red maple. Now there's a lot of very uh, variety in red maple leaves because their genetics are so diverse. The red maple is arguably the most common deciduous tree in North America. It, it spans from Northern Ontario and Northern Quebec all the way down to Florida. So there's gonna be a lot of genetic variety and there's gonna be variants in there causing a lot of different shapes to the leaves, but they will be serrated and those serrations will be fairly irregular. Whereas on a maple, a sugar maple leaf, they are going to be 
pointed, but no serrations on those margins. And there'd be deep U-shaped margins. So if you're looking at the Canadian flag, that leaf is not just a maple leaf, that is a sugar maple leaf. Sometimes the red maples can look more like a moose maple leaf, or they might even look like maple leaf viburnum leaves, but they'll always be serrated on the, on the margins and those little valleys between the points, they will be serrated. Whereas a sugar maple, very smooth, no serrations whatsoever outside of the points on each lobe. With that out of the way, we can talk about their, uh, flowers. So the red maple has a flower that comes out well before the leaves. They're one of the earliest to flower in the Canadian forest, in the Canadian woods. Uh, and they're mostly red. So they'll have a little bit of yellow in them, but they'll be mostly red flowers. So if you see a red flower on that maple tree, it's more likely to be a red maple. Whereas a sugar maple, their flowers come out during their leafing. So as they're leafing out, as those buds explode and the leaves start to take shape, that's when you're going to see the flower. And it's going to be kind of a yellow green color. There won't be very much red on it at all, if at all. And finally, the Samara or seeds on a red maple, they're again red and they're formed before the leaves come out or at least before the leaves fully leaf out. Whereas on a sugar maple, they're green and they form usually after the leaves have come out or at least after they've budded out and the buds have broken open. So that is the main giveaway between red maple and sugar maple in their flowers, their leaves, their seeds, their buds, and their bark. Those are the easiest ways to identify between the two of them. Uh, the scientific name, if you're looking more up for the sugar maple, sugar maple is often referred to as hard maple, curly maple, bird's eye maple, but its scientific name across the board is Acer saccharum. In Anishinaabemowin, it's known as Aninanatig or Ninatig or Enatig. It's also known as Zinsabakwatmatig, which means literally the sugar maple or the sugar tree or the, sh the maple sugar tree. So with all that out of the way, it is an amazing tree to learn about. We've spent the last almost half an hour ranting about this maple tree. Uh, go out and learn about it. Study them. And it's, you know, as soon as this freeze is gone that we're about to experience right now is at the time of this recording, as soon as this freeze is gone, get your buckets out, get some taps out, and start getting ready to boil some sap. But with that, let's talk more about that process now with Rye the Adventure Guy in the main segment of this podcast episode, Ode to the Sugar Bush. Thanks for listening, folks, and learn your trees. Hey there, folks. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, and we have a very cool episode for you. Rye Moffat, Rye the Adventure Guy, is here with me. We're going to be talking about our experiences with sugarbush. So a couple of years ago, we did an episode describing the sugarbush, life of the sugarbush, the whole process, all that kind of stuff. Today, we're going to talk about, because Ryan, you've been, uh, you've been sugaring with me for, this will be your third, I guess, technically fourth year, because we did 2020, 21, 22, and this is 23. So yeah, four seasons now of sugaring you've done with me. Yeah. How, uh, have you ever been sugaring before? Like you ever, like, I'm sure you've done like the tours as a kid for, with for Outdoor Ed or something like that. But have you ever done like work in a sugar bush before this? The year before we met was my first time doing sugar bush. We just had small, I think like 15 tap operation and nice. using the chafing pans mm -hmm. or uh, cinder blocks and fire it was very small operation. So, but it was my nice. first little taste of sugar bush other than, like you said, experiences as a child going 
to pioneer villages where they had their little setups and mm-hmm. even pur- purple woods in North Oshawa, I think was the first actual sugar bush I ever went to as a kid nice. for elementary school. So yeah, it was something that was very delayed in my experience. Fair just enough. Growing up, <clears throat> just seeing the operations thing was pretty cool. And then got that first opportunity and I loved it. It's all so self-contained. You're just walking up to a tree, collecting the sap. I think I made the mistake the first year. I got a little gung-ho and we had that, but we also were using canoe barrels as Mm. our collection method. And if you don't watch how much liquid weighs a lot, yes, (laughs) and it swishes around on your back. So if you, (laughs) even if you have the barrel and the harness, you get out there and you're filling, filling, filling. Okay, I got all the buckets. And then you try to lift it on your back and you've got 30 liters of sap on your back. And you're like, okay. That's, <laughs> that's like, so that I think a liter is two pounds. Yeah. So that's 60 pounds of liquid just sloshing and moving. Yeah. So the center of gravity is just constantly moving on your back from left to right and back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that would suck. So I think that's like a good contained analysis of the quick lessons you learn Mm. and the adaptations you make of running a sugar bush. You're like, okay, maybe I start at the furthest tree and then work my way to the front and don't quite take as much. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we've, we've got it pretty streamlined in our process now. Yes, we do. do. (laughs) Um, I've, I've been working in sugar bushes since I was 15 years old. So we're going on, uh, next year would be 20 years of me off and on working in sugar bushes. So it's, it's, I've seen everything from like this, the, the, the lines to steel buckets, to plastic buckets, to birch bark baskets. I've had a lot of different, like, and a lot of different teachers in it. So I've seen, I've had like, when I worked in the outdoor ed center in Wyerton, we had just big pans on top of this limestone fireplace out in the middle of the woods that we had to like mortar every year with new mortar and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and it would just boil on top of that and it was very efficient but it was all really nearby and yeah. so i never had the thought of like having to carry for like half a k or even for like a couple hundred meters like everything was within like 20 meters of the fire that we were tapping it when i was younger yeah and where we are now like i think our furthest bucket is about 200 meters from where our usual spot is for boiling and in the in the future we may be tapping further in yeah so for those for those who are wondering what we're talking about um we've been boiling at the camp for two weeks now this is our second week going of actually boiling and processing sap uh this is the earliest on record for me i've ever worked in a sugar bush it's a freaking weird season too yeah but uh, we figured we'd talk about this because it's something that's a, a cool learning experience. And it, it brings in different aspects of bushcraft, brings in that different aspects of like being connected to your landscape you're on and working in. It's a very, as much as the term becomes almost cliched, it's a very intimate relationship every season. And I think it's a really great way to start the year off uh, with your bushcraft knowledge of like, okay, I know what these trees are like. I know what these trees are doing. I'm seeing animals coming back. I'm seeing birds coming back. I'm seeing plants actually starting to grow as the snow recedes. And so it gives you a good chance to kind of like almost like an elementary school level of beginning in this, in the, in your school year of, of mm-hmm. bushcraft. And 
Rye had this great idea, like, let's talk about this. Cause we talk about this all the time when we're in the sugar bush and we've talked about the sugar bush on the show before, but we've never talked about our personal journey out there. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to start with just the last four years for us. We're just going to talk about the last four years of Rye working with me in the sugar bush. We're not going to talk about all my, when I was a boy, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Because that's kind of, it's old hat. We already know a lot of the old ways of boiling. We've talked about boiling before, but we're going to talk about what we've kind of experienced in the last few years of the, the our journey together working in a sugar bush. So let's go back, like literally the year that we started together on the sugar bush, right in the middle of it is when the pandemic got announced. Yeah. March 13th, we just started like the first week of March. And we got about three and a half weeks of good boiling out there. Like that was a really, really good year for SAP. Like mm-hmm. a really good year for SAP. Like it was you, me, Rashawn, and Ben for the most part. They were out there all the time. Yeah. And I think uh, Matt Levac, our good buddy Matt, was coming out whenever he could kind of thing. And I think same with Radic and Tom. It was a good like communal year. And we had like water jugs and barrels constantly getting refilled like the the sap just kept running it was like a gold mine that year and we were like barely able to keep up and i didn't have my cauldron yet uh keith didn't have his cauldron yet all my i uh all the years before rye had joined up with me i had small cauldrons like i'd say two gallon cauldrons of cast iron and in that year a bunch of them had cracked a bunch of them had gotten damaged we realized that one of them had been painted and i was like yelling and profanity the first day rye was with me in the sugar bush i was just pissed <laughs> the hell off because i'd realized that one of these cast iron pots that i had bought for like 70 dollars at an antique shop had been painted and i was just to this day like if you paint cast iron folks i hope you step on lego like i i really genuinely truly from the bottom of my heart hope you step on a lego block it's a terrible thing to do to that beautiful material mm-hmm. And so we had to like, at the last second, be like, we got to change up our plan. And so Ben had brought in a old like keg, like a big stainless steel. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was good. But the problem with that for, from my, from my memory of working with it, it was so tall and narrow. It was hard to get it to come to a boil until it was almost too much. And it would uh, start to come up and start trying to boil over. Yeah. You could only, you could only really fill it three quarters maximum. Mm-hmm. I'd say two thirds at that. I would usually keep it at two thirds, but yeah. I'd say if you, if you had it at a simmer, yeah, three quarters of the max you could do because it would just boil over so yeah. fast. <laughs> and I was so so frustrated with that, but it was a good way to get a lot of sap boil down rapidly once you get it to like that two third, three quarter fill. Yeah. And then Ben had gone to his dad's place and and welded these stainless steel boiling pans. Um, one of them, he was only able to spot weld in the amount of time that he had to be there. And so we had to keep it very shallow, but it became this like, oh, this is a lot wider. It's shallower, more surface area. So we can have a smaller fire. And so we just kind of like the chafing dish method you did the year before. We just put it up on top of some cinder blocks, got some firewood underneath it. And we learned quickly to a, have it on a slight angle. So it would pour off easier at the end. Yeah. But also we learned to constantly keep it moving because it was actually burning once in a while. Like the fire would get so hot, even when it was at a sap level, you would see these little black to brown scorch marks on the bottom of the pan where the sugar and the sap had settled and started to cook way too quick. Well, it was so shallow that we were only able to keep two inches, if that, if that of yeah. sap. So yeah, you get a lot of just shallow, quick, hot spots. 
yeah. where you're constantly worrying about dripping out. We had the little spigot that we had to stuff a stick in. So when it yep. just pour out some of the spot welds, it wasn't quite thorough enough. Mm-hmm. Like you said, he didn't have much time to do it. And it was something we we're just trying to throw together last minute. Mm-hmm. So it was very much a learning curve of using that dish. I much prefer the cast iron pots we have now. Yeah. Just the big cauldrons. Those are nice. You can fit yeah. quite a bit in there at one time. And it can, and it boils steady. That's what I like about the cast iron is you don't get these like sudden like flash boils. Yeah. It, you have time when you see it start to bubble up, you have time to go get a hemlock branch or a balsam fir branch and mm-hmm. pop those bubbles and stir it and get it, get yeah. it cool down a bit or move the pot off the fire a bit, whatever it is. Whereas with that, pan it, it boils over really fast the keg it boiled over really fast because it was such a thin walled material mm-hmm. to heat up faster whereas the cast iron held heat so you can keep kind of a steady yeah. and that's what we did the last three years we've been using co- uh, cauldrons the last three years these big cast iron cauldrons and i love them <laughs> for, yeah perfectly frank I, I there's a lot of people that come to our show where it's like why don't you get the bunch of boiling pans set up why don't you do this and that to get it more you know you have all these drafts cooling your cast iron. And it's true. Like if we built up two, you know, brick walls or stone walls and concentrate the heat inside, we could get a lot more of an efficient boil. But I kind of just like how simple we have. I feel like a pioneer while I'm doing it. Just mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. with an A-frame, a couple cast iron cauldrons hanging out yeah. by it. I feel like I'm out on the land 300 years ago. So... Heck yeah. It's, it really is a beautiful way to just kind of enjoy the spring in my eyes. So to me, it's like, a like we're, we're both well aware that we're not doing this at a commercial level by any means. We're doing this for personal consumption, educational Mm -hmm. purposes, things like that. Our, we have a neighbor who has a, depending on the year, they'll put out 125 to 500 taps and they got a big, uh 1950 style sugar shack with these big evaporators and all this stuff. And it's extremely efficient and they're doing it on a commercial level. Yeah. And we respect that. And we were a, I don't want to compete with my neighbor. They're good friends of mine. I'm not going to be selling my syrup when they could be selling their syrup. Mm-hmm. But B, I don't really have the desire to have to go through all the same work that they have to go through to do what they're doing. Well, they have the cistern on a trailer for the ATVs yeah. and you just constantly see them just puttering back and forth with the kids. And yep. Right. Oh, there goes Jerry again. Yep. Waving at them when they drive yeah. by our sugar bush. And then on some, yeah. on, on some occasions we're over there helping them in their sugar bush. Cause there's just so many buckets to deal with. Yeah. Whereas you and me can pretty much run, like you could run that operation on your own and you have multiple times when I'm too busy to get out there. Yeah. It, it's very self-sufficient in a lot of ways of how we got it set up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great thing that I wanted to like really touch on this subject is we're doing it at a, at a homesteading level. We're doing it at like a couple people getting together, cut some wood, get a boil going, take some syrup home or some sugar, make some sugar. And then they have, you have your sweetness for the rest of the year kind of thing. And that's something that a lot of our listeners, like we've talked about the food forest concept, a sugar bush is a food forest. If you really look at it, there's all these different plants and animals working in that ecosystem that's already established. All you got to do is go in and make use of it, not exploit it, but definitely make use of it. Mm-hmm. And this is something anyone can do. A good friend of ours on TikTok, Anna in the wild, she's doing her second year of boiling and she was caught talking to me about techniques and stuff. And she's just got a couple of uh, chafing dishes on a fire mm-hmm. and she's tapping in an urban area. 
It's, it's an, a great thing. If you have a couple of maple trees in your backyard, you can tap those, whether they're sugar, maple, red, maple, black, maple, silver, maple box elders, they're all going to boil. They're all going to make syrup eventually. It just comes down to how creative you are to get it down to the evaporation. Cause as, as everyone knows, sugar maple has more sugar content. So it's like a, depending on the year, 35 to 40 to one ratio of sap to syrup. Whereas if it's a box elder, it's closer to like 65 or 70 to one. So yeah, you're going to have to boil longer, but if you've got the resources, if you got the time, do it. And it tastes good. And our, our buddy, Ben, when he lived on the West coast, he was tapping big leaf maples and they are gushing out very watered down sap. But he brings up the argument that it has its own unique flavor from that one location. You, you, you can become almost like a syrup sommelier over yeah. time. Oh, that stuff. That's a red maple syrup. And I can taste the smoke. Was this maple wood that you used? Like you can get to that point. I haven't, mm-hmm. but I know people that can get to that level who have gotten to that level. And so it's kind of fun where you can just tap what you got in your neighborhood. Uh, in the previous episode, we talked about, you can tap a lot of different trees, not just maple, walnut, hickory, uh, butternut, if they're doing well in your environment, birch, all that, those kinds of trees, basically non-toxic hardwoods is going to usually work you want to avoid things like oak because they're gonna have high tannin and it's not gonna be very tasty at all uh you want to avoid things like locusts because they are toxic but most of the safe to consume hardwoods you can get sap from and boil it down and so you can be very creative in an urban landscape suburban landscape in a small you know two three acre homestead if you have a hundred acre homestead and you got a sugar bush on it awesome if not start planting so that your grandkids could have a sugar bush it's really a, a very simple system. People can make it very complex, but we keep it simple. And so can you. It, it's not a complex. You need a heat source to evaporate. You need a container you can boil it in. And you need trees to tap and a way to take that sap and bring it to the boiling source. That's really, at the end of the day, all you really need. Mm-hmm. So propane, stove, or barbecue. I prefer open fire, but that's just me. If you have, if you have the... You know, what am I trying to think of? The the ability to weld and, and fabricate. You can build yourself evaporators. My cousin builds evaporators for, uh, for different First Nations communities out of old furnaces and stuff and make some great big boilers for doing big projects if you want. But like Rye's first time doing a boil, it was just chafing dishes on cinder blocks. My first time, it was just little cast iron pots I had at my camp. Mm-hmm. And it can be very low tech, very low tech, which is why it's fun. I like the low techness uh, techness of it. And even if you get yourself a few chafing dishes and a few cinder blocks, that's all you really need to start. And you're working way up from there. A lot of the boilers I've seen made out of big barrels. Still, people are using the chafing dishes on there because they're easy to remove. They're easy to move around. Mm-hmm. It's just in there, nice and easy. Like stuff with like the propane and natural gas. It's good for like a small urban operation where you can't have open fires yep. and yep. you not don't necessarily have the access to firewood if you're just buying pre-bagged firewood there's no point you might as well go buy your syrup from yeah the store unless you're just looking for that connection and just trying to make your own because then you can tell people hey i made this this started off in a tree and now mm-hmm. it's here it's one of those ways of foraging i never thought of it as foraging really growing up but it's it's right then and there you don't need to know necessarily oh this is where the chanterelles are kind of thing right right it's like oh there's a maple tree i can poke a hole in that tree and collect the sap that comes out of it totally. so it's 
it's a nice it's like year by year two you you sort of have to worry about over harvesting and doing damage to the tree mm-hmm. but it's a nice consistent form of foraging where you totally. can get a year's worth of some complex carbohydrates to add to most foods baking cooking mm-hmm. desserts anything you want to use it on so marinades barbecue sauces yeah we we make uh we make maple wines or what's called an acer glen we've also made maple beer which was very strong because i used the wrong kind of yeast and i <laughs> it was delicious Emily... <laughs> but it was dangerous <laughs> it was very dangerous and then from that we make maple vinegar now so like one of the main things we make in the house with our maple syrup and maple sugar is vinegar because we use that vinegar for everything. I don't buy apple cider vinegar ever, really. Um, maybe once in a while we'll grab it for a certain recipe, but that's about it. We use that maple vinegar literally like Frank's Red Hot. We put that shit on everything. Yeah. And so there's a lot of cool aspects to the sugaring process for small scale, big scale, wherever you want to go. I think what's been really fun is the fact that it's me and my buddies. And we're yeah. just getting together we'll because we don't boil every day you got our buckets aren't filling up like they were that first year the last couple years has been quite like maybe a third of them get filled to the brim on a daily basis but not all of them maybe Mm -hmm. most of them i'd say get about a third to half full every single day and so we'll stock up until the cauldron is full and then we'll kind of just put a call out to our buddies like hey we're boiling today or we're boiling tonight many times we just boil in the nighttime after the whole day of work's been done me and rye will just get a couple of chairs and cut some wood, stack it under the cauldrons, make sure they're filled to the brim. And then we bring out some meat. We bring out some, some food. We bring out some coffee cause we're going to need it. And we boil until sometimes two in the morning and it's great. We just sit back and just chit chat and plan things out. Talk about our days, talk about what we're thinking. It's, it's a really beautiful way to be out on the landscape and not have to do a shitload of work at that mm-hmm. time. You do the hard work during the daytime. Then you just sit back and relax and watch the sap boil. That's campfires have always been a bit of a gathering place. Mm-hmm. And I find it's even better when you can add a level of productivity and output yeah. to it. Instead of just burning wood, you're splitting wood. It's all nice as it is, but then to be able to produce something at the same time. It's justified that way. Yeah. It's an extra level to it. Like we're going to be sitting around a fire anyway. So might as well put a pot on top of this, boil Mm -hmm. some sap. And then we have some delicious maple syrup after we are done. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it adds another aspect to it and something we're like, okay, a reason to get out there and do this. Cause we, we wouldn't likely be sitting around the camp having a campfire day and night for a month anyway. So no, and just the length that it goes for a month, however long those temperatures stay in the right Goldilocks space, you could be going forever. And then, hey, whenever you can make it out, make it out. And sometimes yeah. it's just us two. Sometimes it's just one of us. And sometimes we have a whole crew out there, which was something that we were missing during the pandemic Yeah, of having just people coming by, people bringing food, drinks, mm-hmm. and then just everyone pulling up a a spot next to the fire while we're boiling it's a it's it really can be a, a communal thing i'm trying to think of a, of, a, of a prettier way to say it, but a communal thing where you're just together it's it's in anishinaabek culture this time of year is our new year's like this is our 
historic uh, traditionally this is when we celebrate new year's when the, when zigwan happens when the when the life starts to come back to the trees because you've survived another winter and i still treat it that way like we all get together we have a great time last year we had a we had one night where we did sigabon goose where we took a yeah. Canada goose hung it from the fire from the poles that we had the cauldrons hanging from and we just spun this goose on a vertical rotisserie effectively and then we had a little wooden dish underneath catching the drippings then I was adding like sap from the cauldron to that and sweetening and basting the bird with it and I think that was like your second time eating goose but that was the first time you knew for sure 100% that, that was a goose you were eating yeah but I when I about yeah, 10, the story. 10 years ago I was working landscaping for a guy in Toronto but he was originally from Fogo Island, Newfoundland. So mm -hmm. he very thick, Newfie accents. He was into hunting. He would go up to New Liskard by Tomogamy. It was his mm -hmm. hunting grounds. And at that point, I had no exposure to hunting. Nobody in my family hunted. I didn't even have any close friends that hunted growing up in the suburbs of Toronto. And he, one day he's like, I have some Canadian goose. I'm like, can you even hunt Canadian goose? Like <laughs> I would have figured at that point in time, what a lot of people assume is they're a protected animal because yeah. they're such a, a Canadian animal. It's like, as it like, even until like, well, you can hunt beaver too. Like, yep. so I always figured it was something, Oh yeah. You can't hunt raccoons and stuff in the city yeah. and stuff. Like, why would you hunt a goose? So he had given it to me and we had some sandwiches one day at work. We drive around, we stop, we go all around the properties in Toronto. And then we would stop, have lunch. He's like, here's a go some goose that I made. And it looked exactly like roast beef. And I thought this newfie was just trying to have a laugh <laughs> at this suburban Canadian kid. It's like, oh, here's some goose. And the whole time I'm like, <laughs> this is roast beef. He's just trying to pull my leg and seeing how far I will trust his <laughs> words. Yeah. So, and then when we had, I was like, oh shit, goose is kind of like, it's red meat. Yes. I was, I grew up on chicken and turkey and that was pretty mm -hmm. much it for my birds. So I was used to white meat and dark meat, but never yeah. like a red meat from coming from a bird. Yeah. So that was an experience for me, like actually doing it right there. We had got the bird a few hours earlier. We were over at the gravel pit, mm -hmm. got the goose. And then all of a sudden, within a couple hours, it's next to the fire at the sugar bush. And we're cooking it. Got that au jus going. Yep. And but we're just sitting there in the darkness with our headlamps on, picking away at this goose, dipping it in the maple au jus, and it was an experience. It was delicious. I love goose is one of my favorite meats, and it's it's cool because like that we're, we keep talking about the seasonal effect. One of the ways we knew this year that the sap has to be running right now is the Canada geese start flying around. Mm -hmm. We hadn't seen geese in a couple of months, other than like the ones in downtown areas where they don't leave. And so traditionally that's like you sugar while you're goose hunting. And that's like one of the meats you have in the camp is some fresh Sigabon goose. Sigabon, for those that are wondering, it's the term for like that vertical rotisserie where you hang it from a wire and you spin it uh, by the fire and let it drip into a container and base that Sigabon. And it's a beautiful meat. Geese are like, 
it, it boggled my mind since I was a kid why it tastes so much like beef. And then it dawned on me, cattle are grass-fed, geese eat grass. And that's really all they really eat. They'll eat other water plants and stuff, but like their main food source throughout most of the year is grass. So it makes total sense they're going to taste similar. Mm -hmm. But it never really clued in for me until just a few years ago. And I've been eating geese since I was a kid. And I just couldn't figure out why. But uh, yeah, that was that, that's like one of those beautiful, great moments we've had where we had beaver meat at the tra at the from the trap line at the sugar bush, and we cooked some of that up. And we've done mm -hmm. uh, squirrel that we saved from the fall, and we brought it out and cooked it over the fire. And my my favorite, like there, there's these certain things you do in the sugar bush that we do at least that I find just help kind of enrich the experience. Like we'll go out and get the first sap bucket and fill a percolator. Mm -hmm. And then we put our coffee basket in there. We fill it with coffee and then we put it on the fire. We percolate coffee in sap and it's already pre-sweetened. Mm -hmm. And it's this like, just, I never add cream to that coffee. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but like any, even at home, when I use maple syrup as a sweetener, I kind of have to add some cream to the coffee, but it's, when it's in that sap, I just drink it as it is. And it's just such an enriched flavor to me. I love it simple things like that uh, we've done where we had like people making bannock by the fire and drizzling some of the syrup on it or even using the sap as like the water to make the bannock or the bread mm -hmm. let's well, i've even camped out i spent the week a year or two ago it was two years now i think i think so yeah. i spent a week just camping out there and i would cook every meal by that fire just pull over some of the coals and mm -hmm. cooks up some eggs and bacon and have my coffee and it felt so self-contained, like everything I needed was in that one spot. Yeah. So yeah, it feel I that's what I like about the whole process. It feels so self-contained that within a go for a few steps, you got your sap, you bring it back to the fire, and you don't really need anything else yeah. other than sourcing the items to start up and getting your cast iron. I'd obviously mm -hmm. didn't pour and cast iron out in the woods there, but. <laughs> Right, right. It's just cool seeing that whole process come to life on such limited space. Because mm -hmm. normally, I think self-contain is a great way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. You're going out far to go hunting and get your animal, and then you're bringing it somewhere else to process it, mm -hmm. and then you bring it back to your house. But everything within there, you right got there. your syrup. You can hunt a little if you need to, and mm -hmm. get it. Go out and get your goose everything happened within a few square kilometers, which I felt was so cool. And it felt very homesteady. It, it's like the ultimate local vor thing. Yeah. And there's even like at the very tail end of sugar bushes, when those wild leeks, the ramps start to pop their leaves out of the ground. Oh. And so there's that at next step of like, you just pick some of the leeks, chop them up, put them into some sap, boil that, or even syrup, make like almost like a glaze. You can just put on anything. Oh man, it's again self-contained is a great word, uh, way to describe that, Rye. I, I really appreciate that term that you put in there. It, it really is everything you need to make that amazing flavor of the year is right there. Let's well, even get the the leeks and the maple vinegar that we yeah. ac we accidentally made the first time, and then it just <laughs> snowballed from there. Like okay, added the leeks to that, and just the complexity of the leeks themselves. And yep. the maple sugar it almost tasted like straight up teriyaki right yeah. away. It, you get hints of garlic, you get a little bit of onion, you get mm -hmm. the maple, mm -hmm. you get the, the, the vinegar. Yeah. So it was all just in that we had like a, just a little taste sip. It was like, 
this is you could have this as a vinaigrette just on mm-hmm. its own. You could add maybe some peppercorns and something just to give it a little more rounding of a flavor, but just on its own, like this is delicious. I would eat salad with this every day. So and for folks who are like, how do I get maple vinegar? We actually have the trapline meals episode, I think was from December or maybe late November. Uh I actually described two ways to make maple vinegar. And the first one is how we did it by accident. I had a big carboil ma- uh, carboy not carboil carboy of maple wine very weak maple wine i noticed it wasn't very strong yeah and i kind of just left it and i was like i'll use it for something eventually and then it was like two january's ago rise at the house we've been getting this heavy snowfall we were clearing out the driveway of snow for the third time that day playing with the kid in the snow and the dog in the snow and i just kind of came in i looked at that carboy i'm like that looks different and i lifted the the little I, I couldn't even get a good lid for it. The cork that I had bought for originally actually fell in to the damn car. It's still in that carboy. <laughs> I haven't used that carboy since then because I can't get that lid out. So I just had some like saran wrap over it and I lifted that off and I smelled vinegar. And we both had a little taste. We're like, holy crap, this is maple vinegar. And I've had it before. It didn't taste like this was very weak. And so we started evolving it and changing it and growing the mother out of it and all this stuff. And now we have this like rich, dark, beautiful tasting vinegar that we have in the house at all times and we use it for like i said earlier everything and it you can do everything with them and for the 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 leak one that we do all i do is take the leaks that we pick stuff them into a jar stuff them into a bottle and top it up with vinegar and seal it and after like a couple of weeks it's just this rich like ryan was saying like the first time we opened it last year on the may 2-4 weekend i think it was the first time i opened that bottle to try it out and it just, the whole room filled with the smell of this rich, sweet garlic. Mm-hmm. And we were all baffled by how amazing it was. But yeah, there's there's so many directions to go with all that stuff. You can really become like, this is an amazing ingredient for being a chef or a bush cook, all that kind of stuff. It's one yeah. of my favorite giveaways to people is to give them a jar of maple sugar, mm-hmm. little bottle or jar of maple syrup or that maple vinegar we made. It's my favorite thing to give away to people because it came from us. Like everything that is in this came from our homestead kind of thing. Well, Again, self-contained. We've talked a lot about the difference between survival and bushcraft and the differences mm-hmm. like thriving in the woods. And this is what kind of makes you feel like you're thriving mm-hmm. when you're hunting the food and then you're getting all mad scientists in the kitchen out in the woods. Yeah. Like, Oh, how can we go from just picking a few berries and making sure I don't starve to death to all of a sudden we have a complex (laughs) vinaigrette with our home maple. (laughs) You feel like the waiter standing at the table describing the meals of the day and the specials and everything. And it's a real connection to it all. And it's, it's beautiful being able to do it that way and take it to the next level. Mm Mm-hmm. There, there's so much that you can do and it's, it can be simple. It can be complicated. It can be whatever you want to do. We, uh, there's certain people that burn only certain woods on their fires. Mm-hmm. We use ash for the most part. Like we'll sometimes have some maple wood in there. We'll sometimes even have some oak or something in there, but most of the time we're using ash because all the ash around us is dead standing. And so it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of people, they got, they got to go out, the summer before and cut a bunch of wood, stack it, dry it, get it cured. So it's ready for sugaring. Our wood is already seasoned. We just got to cut it down when we need it kind of thing. So it's been kind of like, a, it's a sad blessing 
it's a bittersweet blessing to have all this easy firewood around us, but it's, it's a, in a sense, like ash doesn't have a very particular scent to the, or flavor to its smoke. And so what I like about our syrup is it comes out mostly tasting like you got that smokiness there for sure, but you really just taste the syrup. Whereas if you go with something like hickory wood, you're going to taste more of that smoke in that mix, which is great. But I love how ours is so particular. Like we have, it's, it's just this flavor and this is always a camp mud Canadian bushcraft maple syrup or maple sugar. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be your own variety where you are. If you've got nothing but maple, uh, a lot of the people that I grew up with, that's all they ever used for wood because they didn't, they liked the fact that the smoke would have a similar flavor to the syrup it's coming from or it's creating. Yeah. And I totally respect that, but I don't have a lot of maples to cut down on our property. I don't want to, we only have about where our sugar bushes, we, we own about five acres of usable woods. The rest of the property is wetland. And so the maples that are there, I want to keep. I want to like, I was, you remember how heartbroken I was this year when the derecho hit and I went and checked the camp out finally. And we had lost all those maples up on the hilltop on the edge of our property. I was so distraught. And so like this year, our plans of reciprocity, because we're always trying to be giving back. Like it's not just extraction. We're not just extracting resources from the land. We're trying to always give back in some way. That's all. It's ecological management. Mm-hmm. From where we are, we're not just clear cutting. Okay, take this tree, this tree, this tree, this tree. We're doing our walks around the camp. Like, okay, that tree is in a perilous state. We mm-hmm. see the ash from the ash borer. Those got to come down eventually. We see the destruction from the derecho back mm-hmm. in May. And we're this is stuff we're doing anyway. Might as well make use to it, whether it's to heat the wood stove in your home, to boil sap. It's mm-hmm. about finding all those uses so nothing goes to waste and whatever we can't use goes back to nature and 100%. decomposes to the ground and helps feed the life below our feet. So I love when we have similar opinions and thoughts. Like this. <laughs> You're right on the track. I'm like, when we leave stuff behind, we're just building the mycelial, mycelial networks and helping the ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, this past fall, my, my sister Erin and I went out, we planted a hundred butternuts on the property this coming spring, I'm hoping to get from her partner, Tanner, uh, about 150 sugar maple and red maple saplings or seedlings to put out there because I want more maple on the property in the future because we lost yeah. like 20 on the property in total from that storm <clears throat> and from death and disease and how life is in the woods. Yeah. We want to make sure that some new genetics get in there and new life can come back. There's we Just a week ago, Ryan and I took a walk in the camp and we we're like, okay, that spot's real open from the storm that spot's real open from the storm. Let's plant saplings in there of new maples to get a better mm-hmm. sugar bush in the future. Those trees are too close together and that one's starting to rub the other one and that one's not doing great. Let's cut that one so the other one can thrive. It's stewardship. It's 100% stewardship. It's it's yeah. being part of the ecosystem, not just someone who thinks they have dominion over the landscape. We're, we're trying mm-hmm. to be part of the landscape and I really love that. It's it's And the fact that it's rubbed off on you and you get the same vibe as I do. Yeah. I appreciate you. <laughs> well, that's like, we're not just clear cutting and planting Scott's pine in its place. Yeah. We're not just doing what all the other, I guess is we're putting, we're cutting down trees and putting more trees in there. It's all the same thing. No, it's trying to manage. And like you said, be stewards of the land to help that whole area just thrive. be as it should thrive. Mm-hmm 
give the animals what they need there, give the mycology what it needs, Glorify. And, so. and I feel like the forest is getting that because just like the first day we went out this year to take a look at everything, I was like, okay, I'm going to go over and cut this log that fell down on the trail. I'm going to get that cleared off the trail so we can get the ATV through and be able to get more firewood. Maybe we'll use this for firewood. And I started cutting and Ryan was doing some other work getting, I think you were just checking buckets and, oh no, you were getting some firewood because I'd already dropped a couple of ashes that had been killed and dropped down. I was clean. I cut them up and you were dragging that back for firewood. And I started cutting this log up and I saw the stump it came from. It was this 16, 17 foot tall stump. And I was like, oh man, I better cut that down before it becomes a problem too. And it took me like a good 15 minutes to cut through that log. I'm like, this is just maple wood. It shouldn't be that hard. Wait, the last time this happened, that wood was really special. And so I ran back to around like, you're going to hear me shout about something if this is the case. <laughs> and I, I took a piece and I broke it off with an ax and I looked at it. And sure enough, the entire log was tiger stripe maple, curly maple, flame maple. There's different names for it. And depending on the grade of how much striping there is, it's a, it's not a proper, what people refer to as figure grain. Figure grain is where the grain itself actually distorts and warps and stuff. Uh, things like bird's eye maple is a proper figure grain where there's actually like these little tiny, tiny burls in the wood fiber that make these little things that look like bird's eyes. Um, I think there's also one called quilted maple that you see with the big leaf maples out West. That's a figure grain. Tiger stripe maple is a form of chatoyancy in the wood that, you can kind of guess if a tree has it. And we started to actually notice it ourselves when we were out there at that day, but it's, you don't know until you cut the wood open. And I don't like cutting again. I don't want to cut down our maples unless I have to. And so I'm not going out there trying to cut down trees, trying to find money wood like tiger stripe, because tiger stripe maple is a valuable, uh, a, a valuable timber. Uh, it's used in furniture. It's used in knife handles. It's used in guitars. It's used in a lot of different things as a figure grain, even though it's not a figure grain. It's a fancy wood. Let's just call it that. It's a fancy wood. But I don't want to cut down trees unless I have to. And we came across this log. It was down. I split a chunk open. And sure enough, the whole thing was tiger stripe. And so now we've got all these plans. We went out about uh, four days ago, five days ago. And set up my chainsaw mill uh, with our with our still 500 uh, MS 500 chainsaw with a 28 inch bar with a ripping chain, and we spent about two hours milling out these boards of tiger stripe maple from the one section that wasn't rotted, and then all the pieces that are raw it's just core rot. So we have all this figure grain sapwood that we're going to be using for making hatchet handles, some knife handles, some crooked knife handles, maybe some other fancy things. I want to make some sugaring paddles if I can out of some. And then we got this one six and a half, seven foot long log that we milled out into boards that Rye and I are already got thousands of ideas for <laughs> to make some amazing stuff. Originally, we're like, maybe we'll sell it. Now we're like, no, no, we're making stuff. We're going to yeah. make stuff. Yeah. And so the, the forest gave back in this one tree. It sacrificed to us. It gave to us. I personally think that the woods was saying like, hey, we appreciate what you're doing out here. We, we like what you're doing. Thanks for your work. That's what I think the beautiful side effect, as bad as that storm was, and a lot of people got injured and some people even lost yeah. their lives. Yeah. But it's just the cycle of nature. It's the circle mm -hmm. of life out there. These storms come through and they take out the trees that weren't meant to be necessarily standing. A lot yeah. of the trees that we've bucked up so far had core rot in them. Yep. So it was, I think, better to find out that way. Mm -hmm. and nature does its thing the same way forest fires help clear out 
unnecessary debris to bring mm -hmm. in new life up mm -hmm. from it the storms blew down a lot of our problem trees like this maple that for a good portion of its trunk had core rot and that's where it seemed to snap yeah 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 so i it think was, that's a good part of it too is these things happen this is how the world has survived for millions of years it's how evolution happens yeah it's it's been a really beautiful process of being out there like the the first year that we sugared together radic and john came out and they were getting all everyone together and we were cutting up a piece of birch that had to come down and we were carving out bowls and spoons and stuff together mm -hmm. last year was the cooking that we were doing a lot of we we're doing a lot of cooking around the fire and a lot yeah. of process you even brought a bunch of groceries up this year uh, this year to mm -hmm. bring out there and do fancy cooking around the fire and stuff which yeah. i'm excited to do when you get back mm -hmm. uh you had to head home yesterday before this massive storm finally hits <laughs> i'm waiting for i've been getting blowing snow today and i'm like oh it's coming it's we're on the head we're on the cusp of it yeah. but uh when when rye comes back we're planning on doing a bunch of cooking projects out there and, and playing with a lot of the stuff we've got going it's this beautiful like the camp even though we haven't had students there in several years and things have been changing with canadian bushcraft it's kind of beautiful to see where the camp has evolved now and especially like having someone who's as gung-ho to work as you are coming out and, you know, cutting up wood, moving wood, splitting wood, stacking wood. We've got more wood stacked now than we've ever had stacked in that camp. I think in any season, Yeah. the first, the first year we were honestly, we we're like just getting wood as we were boiling. Mm -hmm. And even last year we were going out near the end of it. We had run out of all the ash we'd cut. We're like, Oh crap. We got to go with this piece. We got to go with that dragging logs back of just random trees that we've had, that we found on the ground. The year before, uh, it was the it was literally the day we got back from being with Kylan tanning beaver hides. We, on our drive back from Espanola, we were up there. It's like minus 35, minus 20, deep snow everywhere. And we started driving down along the coast of Georgian Bay. And we're like, oh, that field is open of, of any snow. Oh, that field is completely barren. Oh, those trees have big buds on them. Crap, sh the sap is running. <laughs> And we got back and the sadly Peterborough had gone into another lockdown. And so the day we get back, we're told no visitors, no guests on the res. And so Rye had to go home for the first week of me being out there on my own. And I'm boiling on my own for the first time in a while. And I was just bummed out. Like it, it was easy in a sense, like it wasn't hard. I wasn't suffering, but I just love having that communal experience with boiling. And I had to go out. There's no firewood ready. Our cauldrons were there. We we're like, that was fine. We had the cauldron going, no problem. But I had to go out and find a big dead ash, cut it down. My back had been aching from the week of standing on a hard floor and pushing on pelts and stuff. And it became this like amazing process over the next four or five days of me being completely on my own in the sugar bush. I felt my back getting stronger. I felt my body getting healthier, doing this, these stretchings of leaning down with a saw to cut up the wood and stretching up to lift the wood and carrying the wood over. I got healthier, even though I was in excruciating pain the day I started. By the end of the week, my back felt like Arnold Schwarzenegger's back. I felt like I was yeah. back to my, I felt like I was in my 20s again. Mm -hmm. And then after a week of it, the res, uh, I talked to our general manager of the community. I was like, hey, like, he's not coming into my house. He's not doing this. We're, we just, we want to boil. We, I, I need some help out here. And there's no one in the community that's really available to come and help. And they're like, oh. Well, yeah, bring them on down. Feel free. Like as long as you guys are staying outside and doing this or that. And then so Ryan came bolting over that day. <laughs> like, I, I texted him that more. I was like, they said yes. And he's like, I'm packing my shit now. 
and he came racing out and it was like this even though we had not we'd just seen each other six days ago it was like this beautiful reunion and hugs all around (laughs) and got back to boiling and being doing our thing and it's like this beautiful i keep saying beautiful and i feel like it's almost getting overused but it's it was this beautiful moment of like i'm healthier now i'm happier now my body is better let's really get to work and that's mm-hmm. when we started boiling hard that year. We didn't get a long run. And that's been the thing about this year is I'm like, we started three weeks earlier than I ever have. And again, I've been tap boiling for nearly 20 years and I've never boiled at the beginning of February ever, mm-hmm. ever. And that's what happened. We came out to just start clearing the trails and I had nicked an, a, a, a maple with my ax as I was cutting something and the sap started gushing out. And we looked at each other and went, okay, I'm going home and getting the drill and we're tapping trees. And I talked to our neighbors. They said, no, we're going to wait until the next, because there's a freeze coming. We know there's a freeze coming. The first run is usually kind of bitter or we don't really like the flavor. I'm like, well, I just keep adding. Like some people, they do runs almost like uh, distilling alcohol. Like they'll do runs and they'll do like, this run is going to be an amber color. This run is going to be a dark amber. This one's going to be graded at this. Every single one was going to be different flavors where we kind of just keep adding to the pot. Ours is more like a stew. Ours is a special blend. Right. The distillers like to put their marketing twist on. This is what we had left and we threw it all together. Now we're going to call it a special blend and sell it for five bucks more. (laughs) I like that. So I think it's helped me be more in tune, like just being in the outdoor industry and being a guide has really helped me be in tune with the weather and the changes. I Mm. think especially around this time of year too, like we see the forecast or we just notice it's warm during the day and freezing during the night. Mm -hmm. It's sugar season. It's ready to go. Mm -hmm. There's been people I follow on Instagram. Some of them are like where I live, this happens all the time. So they've been collecting sap through October, November, December, mm-hmm. as the weather permits. And it's one of those things. If the conditions are right, you could the very well runs. have sap running. So, yep. so it's one of those things that just becoming in tune with the patterns of nature and knowing the right conditions for yeah. these things that we do. In, in our area, it's A, like you're saying, you notice the weather shift and you're like, oh, yeah. like this, it's really warm by noon and it's really cold at night. Yeah. And we've talked about in the past, like the crows come back. The, yeah. the crow, the, you, at first in the wintertime, you're experiencing like one or two crows here or there and you'll see mostly ravens and jays. And then sometime just randomly, you'll be like, there's 10 crows on that power line or there's 10 crows or 20 crows in that field mm-hmm. or the crows are chasing ravens and chasing them off holy crap the crows are back and that's usually like our first indicator like sugaring's coming it's on the way like sap is going to be flowing in the next week or so get ready and then the geese were back and we were literally standing on the porch having a smoke and our coffee and we're like i'm hearing crows we just heard a goose we just saw a small flock of them fly by and it's warm and there's like dripping coming off the gutters from the roof from the snow from the day before and it was literally two days before was minus 35 yeah like we had just played a freezing cold game of snow snake two days before yeah and we just kind of looked at each other like we should go check the sugar bush and we went out and we're just like we'll just clear trees that's all we're going to do today 
nicked the bark of that tree and we were like oh crap all the signs were right mm-hmm. we better we better get to work holy shit and it could be climate change i'm not going to argue by any means that it might be climate change i'm quite sure climate change is a large part to do this we know that there was a weather system this past year and even like the farmer's almanac and the weather network was saying like since september it's going to be a very mild winter in ontario and quebec it's going to be a very short uh, short winter long cool spring kind of thing so we kind of knew that it was coming, but we were hoping it wasn't, especially when we had that minus 35 day. We're like, oh man, we might have like another couple weeks of this stuff before we have to worry about the sugar bush at all. Yeah, We got wood to cut, no problem. And then it hit us like a fist. And luckily we didn't get caught with our pants down. We, we started sapping the very next day, collecting sap. Mm-hmm. And even then, even if we get a few extra liters on top mm-hmm. of what we normally get, it'll be worth it already. Mm-hmm. Just the social aspect of what we've 100%. been doing and the cleanup, we're becoming so in tune with our camp and what we need to do and just all the mm-hmm. ideas, just like you were talking about a, a few minutes ago about just we're both ready to go when we know what we want to do with that camp and the ideas that we have for it. So there's so Mm -hmm. much to do. We're going to be out there anyway. Might as well make it some sweet maple sugar. So heck yeah. And it's, we're talking about like with the seasons and the, and these transitions, like we're talking about the, the leaks maple syrup or the maple, the maple run is like my time to start being like, okay, the smelt are going to be running soon after. Yeah. Then the sucker are going to be running soon after the walleye are going to be running soon after the geese are back. The ducks mm-hmm. are coming. So we're going to get our veggies. We're going to get our meat, all that kind of stuff. And it, it kind of slows down in the summertime. Like then you get like this berry is available. These greens are available. These root vegetables are available, but it's like very much more drawn out, slow going springtime. It, it almost feels like, I don't want to say a boxing match, but like how hard hitting it is like, bam, sugar, bam fish bam another species of fish bam the leeks bam this and so springtime as everything's coming to life we're busy bodies and like i seem to burn more calories in the springtime than i do for the rest of the year combined and then the only time i see anything like that even close to that is hunting season it's like okay goose are here now duck are here now ricing season get the acorns now it's deer or now it's moose now it's deer now it's small game until and, and waterfowl until you know new year's and so there's a little bit of the same kind of action in the fall, but it's not as fast paced, I feel, as springtime is when just everything seems to just cascade into the next activity. You know what I mean? Well, even late spring, we're planting in the garden mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. around May 2 for first week of June. And then throughout the summer, we're gardening, we're taking care of the garden. So there's, I feel like each season has its thing that, yeah, okay, we're done this. Now we're moving on to that. And it's the mm-hmm. cycle of getting everything we need to try to be totally. self-sustaining. Yeah. I, from, from what I was trying to explain, I, I feel it's more like drawn out. Like we have time to prepare. It's like, okay, now yeah. we're planting. Now we got a couple of weeks before those things germinate. Let's get the compost ready. Mm-hmm. We got a few more weeks before the compost is ready. Let's get this done. Yeah. In the spring, it's like, we're boiling our sap. And like, literally it's like uh, the guys are coming in that evening to check the boil. And they're like, oh yeah, we were just spearing some walleye. It's like, oh shit, the yeah. walleye are running right now. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's a cascade, more like a river, like a, like you're on the rapids and you're going like, okay, class one, class two, class three. Oh crap, class four. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, it feels more like that. You're rushing down the river. Yeah. Whereas the summertime, it's like, you're taking a meander down the Creek. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we got time to paddle. We got time to enjoy yeah. the show, the view springtime. It's like, hold on to your butts. You better get in there and know what mm-hmm. you're doing with that paddle. Sugaring included. Um, and it's just kind of fun that way. It feels like really energy packed. It feels really like if you miss it by a day, you missed it. Like the smelt run. Like we were waiting for week after week. Like, are they running? Are they running? Are they not running? We talked about this during the smelting episode last spring, yeah. back in June. I think we we actually recorded it. And it literally was like, we were just finishing the boil. I had gone for a spearing session on walleye. And then I got a call like the very next morning. Hey, uh, the smelt just hit last night and like you, me, Kaylee jumped in the truck and took off like the very next morning yeah, and just raced up there. And we were literally there just overnight and mm-hmm. it felt like this crazy wild experience. Again, we talked about it on the show, before. we don't have to talk about it too much, but that was April. Like that was, that was very early in the year in a lot of people's perspectives. And it happened almost exactly the moment that the sap started uh, stopped running. Like almost the very same day, bam, we have to drive up to, and we're driving up and there's still snow and there's ice as we're going up where we are. It was like sunny, balmy weather. We're wearing t-shirts in the sugar bush kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just this wild experience of just going from one thing and transitioning almost immediately into the next thing. And I find that really um, indicative of springtime activity. It's like all the birds come rushing back overnight. This year we were cutting that maple and we heard trumpeter swans buzz the tree line. I've been hearing red winged blackbirds already. Like it's, it's wild how fast it comes in. And yet we're supposed to get minus 30 this weekend. Speaking of which that nest was a red winged blackbird nest. That it was. I got yesterday. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I wasn't I, expecting that. That's so I, cool. I looked into the marsh wren and they have more, they have a roof on their nest with a little circular. Mm. It looks like a little tiny birdhouse among the reeds okay we made out of grasses and everything but this yeah, red yeah. blackbird is just used by the scaffolding of cattails with so, its little little cupped thing so yeah so that was that was pretty cool to see that yesterday yeah we're we're uh ryan's talking about is we were out checking some beaver traps and while i was out on the ice ryan had come across this little it was so cool when i walked up to it it's just this nest with like nine almost like rebars coming yeah. up of just cattail stalks that the this bird had put a nest in. And I couldn't figure out the, for the life of me, what could have built a nest like that. I was like, maybe a marsh wren. Cause that's the only bird I can think of mm-hmm. that for some reason, my brain, I would make a nest like this and I'm wrong. I was hundred percent wrong. That's so cool. I, cause Ryan said, could it be red wing black? I'm like, I honestly don't know. Like, I don't think it is because it seems so low to the ground. But I was wrong. That's awesome. That is so cool. Red Wing Blackbird built a nest like that. That's so cool. Yeah, I did my. I was doing my research last night as I was uploading all the photos I took and everything. So mm, I was like, mm. "What is this? I need to get this right for Instagram." So, or else the people there, come for me. So <laughs> that happened to me last spring. I put up a post, a post of what I thought was a. Uh, I think I, I think I thought it was a king water snake, and it turned out to be a. Yeah, I po- whatever the snake was, I posted up, uh, check out this cool snake. This is what it is. And seven people were like, that is not what it is. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to take my comments <laughs> off. I'm not going to shut comments off. I'm going to take my comments and get rid of them because <laughs> I felt like an idiot after that. You should feel shame. Right? 
they were they weren't shaming me or anything they were just correcting me but i felt shame for not knowing better yeah i think it was like an eastern milk snake or something like that i gotta i'd actually have to go to instagram and look but yeah we're not not afraid that we don't know everything everyone's Mm -hmm. still learning so totally but i'm so like right now i'm excited that wasn't a marsh red that was a red wing blackbird nest that's so cool yeah yeah they're pretty cool very cool yeah there's there's some really beautiful like this is like this is what I like about Sugarbush is there's so much activity going on both with us, but also the environment around us that you kind of get this chance to just be immersed in it and just be there and be present. And that doesn't get to happen as much in the summertime and, and the wintertime and the fall time because the activity isn't the same. Like, yeah, there's animals out in the wintertime. Yeah. There's, there's birds fly migrating in the fall, but when it's springtime, it just feels like new life in all these different ways and it's it's really just fun to just sit there boiling sap because you have to be there Mm -hmm. the the sap ain't going to boil unless you're there feeding the fire yeah so you get this chance just to be there and and watch i bring my binoculars with me every season and i just bird watch from where i am just sitting there it's like oh there's some trumpet swans oh i heard a sandhill crane oh look at that that's red wing blackbirds oh look at that that's a thrush all the jays are leaving and all the robins are coming back all that kind of stuff is happening and then Near the end of the sugar bush, all those vernal pools with the snow melted, you start seeing the salamanders the night it rains and they, they're crossing the road and getting into these vernal pools to mate. And you're seeing all this activity and you get to learn about it. Like right now, I'm learning that that was a red wing blackbird nest and that's freaking so cool. Well, even things like the spring peepers coming out, mm-hmm. you hear the just the chorus towards when the typical sugar bush is in March and everything's pretty much thawed out. Mm-hmm. And then you just hear the chorus, since we're right on that wetland, mm-hmm. you just hear the chorus of millions of spring peepers just going. And at night is just a symphony. Yeah. It could, it could be like drowning. I remember one, one of the dudes that was with us, I can't remember if it was Levac that stayed there that night or if it was Ben. They're like, I had a hard time falling asleep because of those damn frogs. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, because you're so used to a quiet woods all winter long. And then yeah. suddenly it's just like, boom, the birds are singing. And these frogs are just screaming all night long. Mate with me. Mate with me. <laughs> just drowning you out. It's a it's a really fun time to be outside. And yeah, you're going to get wet. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes because it's going to be mixed snow and rain and sometimes sleet. And sometimes it's going to be balmy out and you feel like you're sweating to death, just walking with a couple of buckets in your hand, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. Like it's easy to dry off by that fire. Take your boots off and warm your socks up on your feet, turn the boots upside down and let them kind of drip dry while they're sitting there. And then when you got to get back to work, you put those slightly humid boots back on and get back out there and get some more wood or get some more sap. It's, it's building up from like we've talked about the shoulder seasons before of preparing for being out there dressing properly for it is crucial i've we i've i joke because a lot of the time when we're out there in sugar bush i'm just wearing jeans because i'm cutting wooden stuff i don't really want to have my wool on mm-hmm. and then you get rained on my i'm the one that's soaked and just kind of miserable coaxing myself to stay near that fire and getting smoked out while everybody else can sit back in their comfortable wool and mm-hmm. fjall ravens and stuff yeah, I I already can't wait to get back to the sugar bush. We're about to have a week of very kind of freezing cool. temperatures again. Yeah. Typical February weather, In which March, I'm yeah. which I'm happy about. But yeah, I already can't wait. And then especially just to start sharing with more people again. Hundred percent. It's gonna be 
a blast. Luckily, this free seems to be staying while we're gone as well. We're heading back up to hang out with Kylan in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So we won't be missing a good run. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, when we get back, it runs just like it did before. Yeah. It's it's weird. Like I like I said, the first year we we sat we sugared together, we got gallon after gallon daily. Like most buckets were filled to the brim. I'm kind of hoping that's how it is again. And it, we may get that run. We may not, but either way, I'm going to be happy because we got to spend time together in the bush. We got to have a good fire and cook some great meals and have some good laughs, plan things out for the year. It's really amazing. And on that note, uh, when we return, we'll be inviting a lot of our supporters at Patreon. If you're available to come on out and experience it with us, you can come out and uh, join us in the sugar bush for a day, for a couple of days, whatever you're timing is we'll be letting those folks know we're on patreon when we're going to be back and what the timing and schedule will be like for us it's we're 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 here now we're able to again open up the doors and kind of let in our folks again patreon of course will be in we're getting ready to start running sugarbush workshops for local school board a uh, bunch of people are asking for sugar sadly a lot of it's going to be when we're away but also luckily that's not a good time because it'll be freezing cold while we're away. Mm-hmm. So we're not missing anything out. We'll be, uh, I'm currently talking with a bunch of school, school groups and stuff to see who wants us in that their classes to start showing sugaring process and stuff. So a lot of that kind of activity is back. We're the officially Canadian bushcraft is back. We're, mm-hmm. we're back up and running. we got courses getting developed. Me and Ryan been going over our schedule, making sure it's ca- the calendar's ready, all that kind of stuff. And it's just the perfect time to announce Sugar Bush is when we're coming back. We're bringing in Patreon for in-person. What we're going to be doing is programs in person and for school groups. We are open to be doing online for if you're far away from us. We're going to be doing online Sugar Bush workshops with you, all that kind of stuff. So contact us. Those of you that know to contact us, just contact us how you usually do. If not, uh, send us an email at CanadianBushcraftPodcast at gmail.com or CanadianBushcrafter at gmail.com. Don't forget that ER. There is no Canadian Bushcraft at Gmail. It's Canadian Bushcrafter at Gmail or Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. And if you're on our Patreon, message us there. If you're on our social media, message us, uh, message us at our Instagram, Canadian Bush uh, at Canadian Bushcraft 2. Or if you're on Facebook, go over to the Canadian Bushcraft page and just send us a message or send us a comment and we can start making arrangements with you for programming. And even if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram at mm. Rye underscore the adventure guy, a lot of people already messaged me on there. So shoot Perfect. me a message if you have any questions. So, and we can start arranging programs for you and Sugarbush the perfect time to start doing that because it's a really fun experience. Kids love it because they get to do a little bit of work and then get a sweet reward at the very end. So, oh yeah, whole bunch of cool programs coming up. And with that, I think that's pretty much all we have to say for this episode or this segment of the episode. Uh, With that, I want to thank you to all of our supporters over on Patreon. People like Paul, people like Renee, people like Nelson, Martin, Chris, Kyle. There's another Kyle now that's on there. We got like five of you now. Uh, Charlotte, all these amazing people that support us over at Patreon. Keep the lights on here. Keep us being able to do things like this. Uh, so that we can keep doing programming, doing podcasts, doing ho- upcoming videos that are coming just down the pipeline. Probably mid-summer, you'll start seeing a lot more videos coming up on our YouTube channel. Uh, TikTok, we're st- we've got about five videos right now recorded that I'm just editing and making sure they're good. And I got a couple more pieces to put in. Then we're putting them up on TikTok. All that kind of stuff happens because you're helping support us. And it can be as little as a coffee a month worth of value. So you go on patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. You can become a supporter, a member of the, a paying member of the Dragonfly Nation today. 
and help support us and make sure that sushi and tracker and the ducks don't lead a revolt against us and an uprising and take over the world <laughs> and enslave humans and put us under their very soft fluffy thumbs with all that said and done thank you very much folks for listening and we'll see you next week with another episode of the canadian bushcraft podcast